So if I were to come up here this morning and I were to say the words, God is good, what would your response be to that? All the time, and all the time, God is good. I had a feeling that's the response that I would get this morning, because here in the church, in the the local church gathering, that's often the response that a pastor gets when they say that, because people just know, because it's been going on for years, that that's what we say. We say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and we just, you know, we finished our time of music with those words of, may his favor be upon you. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. I remember the first time that I heard that song. Actually, that's not totally true. I don't remember the first time because it was probably like background music at that point. But I remember the first time I actually stopped and I listened to the words of that song. And then my brother texted me about it and he said, hey, have you heard this song? To which I got on there. I didn't recognize it by the title and who sang it. So I got on and I listened to it. I was like, yeah, I've heard that. That's That's a great song. And his response was, probably wasn't very hard to write, was it? Because it's, you know, amen, you sing amen a lot. That's not real hard words and lyrics to come up with. And really, the beautiful part about that that I think I love the most is that the author of the song, the person who put it to music that we sing now, didn't write it in the first place. It comes straight out of numbers. It comes straight out of this thing that we call the Bible. And there's this promise in there that the Lord will bless you and the Lord will keep you. His face will shine upon you. And that's a prayer that I pray over you guys every day. I have a a friend before we moved actually put this and they framed it for me. And I've got it on the wall in my office. I prayed over you. I prayed over our community. And I even remind myself, and you've heard me say this a few times, that I need to pray this even over those who I would consider my enemies. And we, we don't like to use that word that we have enemies, but the truth is, like Jesus tells us, to love your enemies and pray for them, which means we're going to have these things called enemies, but we're supposed to be praying for them and praying that the Lord would also bless them. So I do, and that's, that's one of the reasons I love that song. We also, uh, as I was growing up, we loved to sing other songs that had a lot of this God is good mentality to it. You know, we had the uh, God is good All the time, he put a song of praise in this heart of mine. Some of you are starting to like nod along, like, yeah, I recognize that song. Or um, There's a little bit newer song that came out just a few years ago that we sang at IYC, International Youth Convention, where the, the chorus of it is, for you are good, you're good, oh, you are good, you're good, oh. And then it gets really passionate. It's, you are good, you're good, oh, you are good. See, I'm starting to see some girls over here, some teenage girls, like, starting to sing along and starting to move a little bit. Maybe we'll just do this all morning long because it'll get people involved. Or there's the classic of God is so good. You can feel free to sing along. God is so good. I did this way too high. God is He's so good to me. You did not want me to try and hit those notes because I did not start that in a healthy key for myself. And that would not have been healthy for your ears either. But we have all these songs that we sing about God's goodness. And then we look at some things that are going on in our world. And a Fuller Youth Institute uh, study that came out not that many years ago actually found that 70% of youth group graduates meaning not 70% of high school graduates, you know, students who are going through the schools, 70% of youth group graduates 
who sit in church every week with their families or almost every week with their families who go to youth group on Wednesday nights or youth group on Sunday nights or whatever night of the week their particular group has a youth group. 70% of these youth group graduates admit that at some point during their time in high school, they had serious doubts about God. And some of you, know, some of you students that are sitting in here right now, you would admit like, yeah, I'm, I'm having some of those serious doubts because I come to this thing that we call church and I hear God is good all the time and all the time God is good, but that's about the extent of what I hear. And part of the problem, and we'll talk about this at some point, part of the problem is that we consider church a place that you go and it's a time that you experience for an hour to an hour and a half on the weekends or on Wednesday night or whenever it might be instead of church being something that you are. And so that's part of the issue right there. And part of the issue is that you know we, we have a lot of people who are giving us different messages as to what the reality of creation is and, and who the ultimate authority is and, and where we find power and all these things. And they're hearing all those stories, but. In my 12 years that I served in full-time youth ministry, and the many, many conversations that I had with students during that time, the conversations I had with parents during that time, grandparents during that time, people who had no connection to the students that I was working with at all, I found that there was an underlying reason for why these doubts started to come in. And uh, Jeff Myers, who you've heard me reference several times over the past several weeks, he wrote a book called Unquestioned Answers. He's the uh, president of Summit Ministries. He kind of came or has come to some of the same conclusions that I've come to over the past you know, dozen years or so. And that a big reason for these doubts that are coming in, it doesn't start with the doubt over God's existence or the doubt over God's power. It starts with the doubt over God's, can you guess? Anyone? His goodness. It starts with the doubt over his goodness. Not whether or not he's really there, but it starts with whether or not he's really good, and then it progresses to whether or not he's really there in the first place. In in that same book, Jeff Myers talks about a conversation that he had with a businessman, and he was sitting down with this businessman, and the, the man looked at him eventually as they were having their conversation. He says, you know, Christianity has a real problem with evil. And Jeff Myers, instead of just assuming that he knew what the man meant, he looked at him and he said, well, can you explain to me what you mean by that? And the man looked at him and said, yeah, Christianity's problem with evil is that either God is not who the Bible really says that he is, or God is exactly who the Bible says he is, and he's looking at all the world's suffering, and he's looking at all the evil in the world, and he just doesn't care. He's just passively looking on as our world falls apart and as people suffer. And these are the questions and the doubts that are seeping into people. Now, maybe you would have been one of those people that would have to admit that when you were in high school, you had serious doubts about God's goodness. Maybe your doubts came after you got out of high school. Maybe you would have been in the 30% who didn't. Maybe you were in the 50% of youth group graduates who just stopped going to church when they get out of high school and then the the 50% of those who never come back. Obviously, if you're sitting here right now, you would fall probably in the 50% who did come back if you stepped away from, from church for a little while when you got into college. But we're hearing so many different messages about whether or not he exists, but we're also seeing so many things 
that cause students and cause adults doubts over whether or not he really is good. You know, things like the, the racial and social unrest that's going on in our world, in our nation especially right now. Things like a virus that has killed thousands of people in the world. Or just the arguments that we see over whether or not the virus has actually killed anybody or if it's really killed that many people or the response to how you respond to it. Or they look at what's going on on the West Coast right now as in California, Oregon, Washington, they're just being decimated by fires. You know, I've got family that lives out in Portland, Oregon and in the, the surrounding area, I've got two cousins who were actually evacuated from their homes because the fires were getting so close and they were sending us pictures and And my sister-in-law has been sending us pictures and and sending us videos of what it's like to drive through Portland. And I don't mean downtown Portland where the unrest is happening socially, but just driving through Portland where the skies are red and full of smoke. They had to postpone their e-learning because they had to register outside and pick up their Chromebooks outside because of COVID. And so they couldn't go outside even because the smoke was so heavy in the air that it wasn't healthy to be out there. Towns have been completely wiped out. Lives have been lost. Livelihoods have been lost. And then on the other corner of our nation, way out down in the south and the southeast, you have the complete opposite thing happening where you had Hurricane Sally come rolling through. And one of the reports that I read was that in the course of two hours, an area in Florida had four months worth of rain. Four months, and now for where we just moved from, from Wyoming, four months worth of rain isn't really all that much rain, and that's not a big deal. But down in Florida, four months worth of rain is a lot of rain. And people have been sent out of their homes, and they've lost everything that they have. They've lost lives down there. In 2019, which feels like forever ago, but in the summer of 2019, we took a group of students from Casper, Wyoming, down to Puerto Rico, to where we were helping them recover from what is on the island just called Maria. You know, here in places, you know, people who don't live in Puerto Rico, they would refer to it as Hurricane Maria. But in Puerto Rico, it was just Maria. If you went in and you asked how they handled Maria, they would know you weren't asking how they handled the difficult customer that came in. They would know that you're talking about the hurricane that moved through and killed 2,982 people and caused $90 billion worth of damage to a tiny little island. We went in 2019 to help them continue to recover from this. That hurricane moved through in 2017. And the recovery process was still going on. Or in 2016, I took a group of students down to International Youth Convention, which you'll often hear us just refer to as IYC. So if you hear that, you know what that stands for. But we went to an international youth convention in San Antonio. But before that, we went a little bit further down the road and we went to Houston where we help them in their recovery process from what's known as the tax day flood. And in the recovery process that we were helping with, we were going into homes and we were supposed to be tearing out the drywall that went up to the flood line, which was generally about four feet high up the wall. So about halfway up the average height wall. And they said, as you do this, tear it out up to the flood line, but if the mold is going higher, tear out until you get above the mold and then leave the rest of it. And their plan was that they come through and they spray out the house and they kill all the mold and then they put new drywall back up. We ended up in about six or seven homes just completely gutting them down to the studs because the mold was all the way up to the ceiling. 
and it was in the floors. And you had to be careful when you were tearing it out because there could be snakes or there could be who knows what other kind of creatures that don't normally live in the area but came in with the floodwaters. Who were all, you know, the animals were displaced from their homes, so they found a home in the people's homes who had to leave. And we had conversations with these people that had had to leave and were coming back, and the only way they were gonna have a house that they could even live in was because of organizations like Operation Blessing that we were working with that were just spraying them down and throwing up new drywall and then had to move on because we left them with nothing. And they had no flood insurance, so they, they didn't have the money to pay for it. So they had a home, but nothing to put inside of it. Here in the United States, if we hear the name Katrina, somewhere, you know, some here in this area will think of Katrina memory or some maybe some other Katrinas that you know. But around the nation, in general, if you hear Katrina, you think of Hurricane Katrina, and you, you think of those images or the videos that we saw of New Orleans just being completely underwater. Or if you hear the words Twin Towers, or 9-11, or sometimes even when we just hear 911. Images are brought up. You know, just a few weeks ago, not even a few weeks ago, it was all over Facebook, the where were you on that day? Now, a lot of teenagers, in fact, if I, if I stop and do the math, yeah, we could still have some 19-year-olds who would have been alive, but teenagers don't remember seeing those videos and don't remember seeing those pictures. But if you're older than that, I remember where I was on those days and those images of airplanes flying into buildings and taking down these buildings are still present in our minds. When we served in Tulsa, um, before we went to Wyoming, I served with a pastor whose wife actually lost a sister in the Oklahoma City bombing when Timothy McVeigh used a bomb to blow up a building. Those images are forever there in people's minds. And young people and older people walk through life and they sometimes have these questions and they have these doubts of if God is so powerful and if God is so good, then why does he allow all of this stuff to happen? Either he isn't who he says he is in the first place or he really is that powerful but he's just sitting back and watching it burn. You know, we can get into all kinds of debates, and they, and they happened in the church. When, when Katrina moved through, I heard the comments about how, well, God is punishing New Orleans because they are such a sinful city. And all the damage that was done when people made that statement. When people said that that was God bringing judgment down on people, because let's be honest, there's a lot of places in our world every bit as sinful as New Orleans. And the truth is, while we may not do it all on the outside and we may not flaunt it everywhere, we are all sinful people, just like the, the group city of New Orleans. So how can we sit here and say God's judging them but he's not judging me? And yet, and people sit back and they watch and they watch those discussions and they watch those arguments and they see what's going on and they continue to ask the question, how can you say that God is good? And one of the easy answers that we like to give, and it's not a false answer, that's what I want you to hear, is that this is not a false answer. 
But sometimes we use it as a cop-out, easy answer because we don't really want to deal with the question at hand is the, well, you have to understand that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts, which is absolutely 100% true. God himself tells us that. He tells us you're not going to understand why all of these things happen. The Apostle Paul, a man who at one point was so against Christ and so against Christianity that he was making it his life's goal to go through and to just wipe out all of the Christians. And when I say wipe out, I don't mean close down their buildings. I mean take their lives. Like that was his goal was to go around and do this. He had an encounter with Jesus that was so convincing that he actually turned and his life's goal became to be a voice for Christians, a voice for Christ. Everything switched because he saw the power and he saw the goodness. But he wrote at one point to a church in Corinth. He told them that now I see dimly as in a mirror, but later I will see with perfect clarity. And so it's true that we're not going to fully understand all of the reasons for the things that go on in our world. But what if, what if there's a little bit deeper of an answer and a little bit more to this discussion that we can have? Because I believe that the answer to this question starts in the very beginning of this book that we call the Bible, and it doesn't end until the very end of this book that we call the Bible. I'm gonna ask you, if you have your Bible with you, this is gonna be really hard for you to look up these scriptures today. I want you to turn to page one, and I want you to turn to the last page. Genesis chapter one, Revelation chapter 21. Now I understand that there's gonna be a concordance in the beginning, and there's gonna be like a glossary in the back. I'm talking about the actual very beginning of the Bible itself, and the very end of the Bible itself. And I believe that the answer is found in those pages and all the way in between in the story that we call scripture and the story that we call the Bible. In Genesis chapter one and verse one, many of you have this memorized. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, there was darkness over everything. But then God said, let there be light and all of a sudden there was light and there was a separation between this darkness and this light see when we think of of darkness we know that we can't have an idea of darkness without having at least somewhat of an understanding and an idea about light When we think about suffering and we think about evil, we understand that we can't have suffering and evil without some sort of an understanding as to what is good. And as God creates, at the end of each day, he says those words that we probably also know he says, and it is good. God defined what it means to be good. And we've been trying to define and redefine what it means to be good ever since that day. Ever since he put humans on the earth, we've been trying to define and redefine what it means to be good. Well, is good a matter of opinion? Is it just what I believe? Well, the problem with that, we know, comes into what happens with what we're seeing in our country right now, that you have Republicans who believe that what they believe is good and what the Democrats believe is evil, but we also have Democrats who believe that what they believe is good and what the Republicans believe is evil. So it can't just be a matter of opinion because we can't all be right. 
when we disagree that heavily. And it can't just be groupthink, because let's face it, it wasn't that many years ago in our nation that groupthink believed that slavery was good, that slavery was necessary. It was groupthink that led to the Holocaust in Germany as the Nazis began to kill Jews. It was groupthink that said that was right and that was good. So it's not just what society accepts as good, that's the definition of good. The definition of good has to come from outside of all of that. And while this businessman said that Christianity has a problem with evil, we also know that Christianity has an answer to evil. And the answer to evil is found in the pages of this thing that we call the Bible. In the very beginning, God created and he said that it was good. And then humanity came along and humanity started to mess things up. And humanity started to make poor decisions. Because this good God, working much like a father works, much like a parent or an authority figure works, he gave options. Now, he didn't say, now you can choose this one or you can choose this one. They're both going to be equally fine. No, he said, this is the path that's going to give you the best, a.k.a. the more good life. This is the path that you can choose that's going to give you the best, but you can choose a different one. Just know it's not going to give you the same life that this path will give you. When I was growing up, I... My parents gave me a lot of options, and they gave me a lot of, this is the right choice, and this is a choice that you're going to regret, but you know what? It's going to be your choice. When I was a teenager, they could have protected me and not given me car keys, but instead, they allowed me to go out, and they allowed me to buy my own vehicle, and as I bought my own vehicle, they could have just said, hey, you're only allowed to drive when I'm in the vehicle with you, but the law said that I could drive other times. Now, they told me that if you choose to drive in the times that the law says that it's illegal, you might get a ticket. Or if you choose to drive in a way that the law says not to drive, you might get a ticket. Or if you choose to be a complete teenage boy, a.k.a. idiot driver, then you might get yourself into an accident. They could have just said you're not driving. Just like they could have said instead of don't touch the hot stove, they could have just put a barrier around the hot stove and completely baby-proofed the house. Instead, they gave me keys. Well, they gave me keys. I bought my car. Let's be real here. I bought the car, and then I went out and I drove the car at a time that I wasn't supposed to drive the car in a place that I didn't have the experience to handle the road conditions that I was on, and I rolled the car. Actually, it was only a half roll because we ended up on the top of the car. And it was, it was fine, we were hanging by our seatbelts, it was all great, except that I lost my car, and then I didn't have the ability to drive for a while. And then I bought a second vehicle, and my parents could have said, hey, now, you're only, you're only going to drive when I'm in the vehicle with you, but instead, they chose to give me options, and then instead of being the parents that don't allow anything bad to happen, they allowed me to make my own choices, and I rolled car number two. And this one I actually rolled all the way over, uh, not wearing a seatbelt that time, so that could have been even worse there. And then I bought a third vehicle, and they could have said, now I'm not going to allow you to drive unless I'm in the vehicle with you, but they chose to let me drive. And some of you are like, what kind of parents did you have? And I, <laughs> and I chose to drive too fast and to take a corner too fast, and I T-boned another vehicle. Now that vehicle I did fix up. But in the, in the midst of all of this, they loved me through every last bit of it. They, they really did. 
But in the midst of this, as I was buying these vehicles, and, and really vehicle number two was dad bought the vehicle at a farm auction, and he said, you can either buy this vehicle from me or you can rent this vehicle from me, but either way, you're paying for this vehicle, so I, I bought it because that was the better financial decision. But in the midst of this, I remember a time where I was sitting there, or we were standing in the church, and I knew that my dad was standing nearby. And I made a comment, because a lot of my friends, like they lived on farms, or they did farm work, or their parents just didn't care, and at the age of 14 and 15, where I grew up, you could drive to and from work only. And you could have immediate families only in the car, to and from school and work, sorry. But a lot of my friends got to drive other times, and I didn't, except for certain occasions. And so with my dad standing nearby, and my friends and I having this conversation, I said, yeah, my parents let me drive when I'm not supposed to drive too, when it's inconvenient for them to drive. And I said it with as much malice and sarcasm and hate in my voice as I could because I knew that my dad was listening. And when we got home, the car that I paid for, the gas that I paid for, the insurance that I paid for, the keys that were my keys went into his possession and I didn't drive for another three months. Unless it was convenient for my parents for me to be the one who drove. I think that's, that's the story that we see as we really open up scripture and as we have these questions about whether or not we have a good God. Because he does allow us to make mistakes. He allows us to really, really screw things up. But in the midst of all of that, he chose to come down and to live among us so that there would be a way for us to continue back on the right path. You know, my parents could have said, hey, you rolled your first vehicle, you're done, buddy. Like, there is no more driving for you. And, you know, I, I sped through the story, and it makes it sound like they just, on, you know, one day I wreck it, and the next day I've got a new vehicle. It, it was a longer process than that. But they gave me a way to continue on the right path. And I took that, and I messed it up again. And they walked through it with me again, and then they gave me a way to continue on the right path. Christianity's answer to evil is Jesus. Jesus came so that we could continue on the right path, so that we would have the options to mess up our lives, but still have an opportunity to have the best life available that God has in store for us. That, to me is the sign of a good God, a good and loving God. And while he was here and while he was walking among us, there's a story of when he went back and two of his best friends, not the disciples that we normally think of, but two of his best friends who were sisters, had just lost their brother. And when they came up to Jesus, when he came walking up to them, they came to him and they, you could tell they had these doubts because they came up to him and they said, if you had been here our brother wouldn't have died. Like it wasn't a, hey, I don't think you could have done anything about this anyway, but we're so thankful that you're here now. Or, you know, I don't think you could have done anything about this anyway, but I wish you had been here. No, it was a, if you were here, we don't doubt your power. We know you could have stopped this, but you weren't. And so we doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. And here's the story of the father coming into this moment and seeing the pain on his children's faces 
And before he went in, knowing that he was going to go in and he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing that that was going to happen, so he wasn't crying because he was sad that his friend was dead, but it says Jesus wept for the pain. It doesn't say this part. This is the underlying part. Jesus wept for the pain of those two sisters and what they were experiencing. And when it says he wept, it's not like the, you know, the person trying to drum up some empathy and trying to feel bad for somebody, especially when they know what's coming. And they know it's about to be okay. Hey, I'm good. I'm gonna take care of this. It's fine. No, when it says he wept, like it means it's the, it's the tears flowing down your face. It's the snot bubbles coming out. It's the sob, retching cry of a man who is in pain because he sees the agony on his friend's faces and he sees the pain on his friend's faces. When he sees the suffering and the evil that we're going through, he's not sitting there just going, well, it stinks to be you. I guess you should have done something different. No, he sees our pain and our agony and he weeps with us. He provides the way for us to have a better life but he weeps with us as we walk through this. At the very end of this story that we call scripture, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse four, I'm gonna pull this one out here because I wanna make sure that I read this exactly like it is and not summarize it, not paraphrase it. Actually, going back to first, verse three, sorry, in chapter 21. It says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. So this is looking forward to what's coming at the very end of all of this thing that we call life. And then it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever can't tell you how many times I've had one of my children on my lap or I've been wrapping one of my children up in a hug. And now, I will admit, Sarah is better at this than I am. The number of times that I've had one of them wrapped up and I've had to wipe that tear from their eyes and comfort them and assure them it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And just walk through it with them. The Father is waiting for that moment when we will come to him. He's waiting for that moment at the very end, but he's also waiting for that moment now when we will come to him so that he can wipe away the tears from our eyes. That is the sign of a loving and caring and good God. He doesn't always give us the answers that we want to hear. He doesn't give us all the experiences that we want to hear. You know, we sit here and we say, well, why can't it just be this way? Why can't you just do this? And just like the parent who's looking at their child as they're disciplining their child that when they have to spank their child or they have to um, correct their child or when they've just seen their child make a poor mistake and they're having to walk through it with them or somebody else did something to their child and their child is suffering because of it. He's sitting there wanting to hold us Wanting to let us know, hey, I can't 
protect you. Well, actually, the difference is he can if he goes against his very nature of who he even is. But with his nature, I can't just sit here and take away all of your free will. But what I can do is I can comfort you, and I can love you, and I can restore you. That's why my son came down in the first place. When his son was here, when Jesus was walking among us, he told us in John chapter 16, if you open it up, he told us at one point that we're going to have trials in this life. We are going to have hard times and we are going to have struggles while we are in this life. It's a promise that he made us. Then he says, but take heart, for I have overcome this world. And I have told you all of this so that you can have peace in the midst of this world that you live in. As the worship team comes back up, uh, we're going we're gonna to do a song that it's brand new. It's one that really I was just looking up the lyrics and the chords to some of those songs that I was singing earlier and I stumbled across this. I thought, man, with what we're talking about this morning, this captures it so well. Because the truth is, as we are in this life and as we are walking here, there will be those hard times. And I know that there are people in here who have suffered horrible things in your life. Maybe, like Megan shared last week, you had to bury a parent way too soon. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and you've had to bury a child way too soon. Or maybe you lost a child before you even got to hold it in your arms. Teens, I've seen the things that you go through in school. I've seen the way that you can be treated by teachers. I've seen the way you can be treated by peers. I've seen the anxiety that mounts up as you walk into that building. In this world, you will have trials and troubles of many kinds. But I tell you this not to scare you. I tell you this to give you peace. Because I, the good God, have overcome this world. And I am here to wipe away every tear. Church, we live in a world that doubts the goodness of God that doubts the existence of God. And as we've talked about some of these questions that people have to the answers that we give, it's not just so that we can have better answers, so that we feel better. It's so that we can reach a world that is hurting around us. So that we can love them with the gospel of Christ, so that we can love them with the story of scripture, not hit them over the head, with the story of scriptures, but so that we can love them. So that when we see that person who is suffering and that person who is in pain, we can lean in to them. We can let them know about a good, good God who loves them.